So the species we work with, the projects we take on, it's all about answering the call. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hello, 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 and welcome to today's episode of the Raw Safari Podcast. Did you know that the word podcast is actually a portmanteau of the words iPod and broadcast? That's right, y'all. Even though this digital medium is still considered relatively new, the technology that gave it its name is already pretty old school. I mean, who has an iPod anymore? I'm pretty excited about that knowledge, though. Now I guess it would just be called a phone cast or something if it came out. So I'm glad these things came out when they did. Or could you imagine if they came out even earlier? Before iPods, the main thing people used were Discman and before that, Walkman. So I guess this could either be called a disc cast or a walk cast. I, 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 I don't know. Y'all, I'm in a goofy mood. What can I say? But the reason that I'm in a goofy mood is that I have a really good episode for you today. Also because I'm just a goofy person. We all know this. So before we get to what we're going to be talking about today, quick reminder, make sure you are following along uh, at Raw Safari on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Raw Safari Pod on TikTok, and, um, you know, you can hit up rawsafari.com to see websitey things about my walkcast. <laughs> also, if you want to support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash rawsafari, financially support us for as little as $3 a month, and you get all kinds of cool bonusy stuff. Yay, cool bonusy stuff. But enough about all that. Today, I am bringing you my interview with Keith Winston, the zoo director of Brevard Zoo in Florida. Now, this zoo is awesome. It is such a different, unique place. Uh, you can kayak through the zoo, like actually get in a kayak and actually go through the zoo. They also have a really amazing zoo train with uh, some hoofstock species that are right there. They can actually stand right on the tracks. They stood right on the tracks. We had a hold up. It was really cool. Um, and I just, I don't know, it's just such a neat place and it's, it's an experience. And, and Keith talks about that a little bit. When you go to this zoo, you're not just there to see some cool rare animals. You're there to have an experience. And, and part of that is influenced by the fact that, um, this is pretty close to all the parks, the, the Disney parks and universal parks and, and all the parks. And so when you're competing with Mickey Mouse and Harry Potter, you've got to, you've got to have a bit of an experience. But it actually goes a lot deeper than that. And I'll, I'll let Keith talk about that. But I, I think it's pretty cool, uh, the perspective that he brings to this. And Keith is just a really cool guy. This is one of those interviews that is less interview and more conversation. We shoot the poop a lot. We, um, heck, I wish I had been recording the whole time I was setting up, despite the fact that that's not possible, because Keith is really into music. And we talked a lot about my career and the fun stuff that I do and how music has impacted his life and his children's lives and... um. Oh, it was awesome. It was just such a good time. Keith was such an awesome person to get to know. And 
I, I'm just so appreciative that he took the time to do this interview. And Keith wasn't the only really cool person that I got to spend some time with uh, at Brevard because my friend Alicia Gaudet came with me and we had a blast. Alicia has been a fan of the pod for a long time now, and we've gotten to be friends on the socials, and uh, we spent some time together hanging out while I was down in Florida, and it was awesome. We visited a couple different facilities and um, spent some time road tripping to them, and it's just it's just so cool to see uh, what something like a, a podcast can give you, and and when you when you embrace the idea of getting to know people and trying to do something cool and unique, it can really change your life. And I love that. And I'm so proud that Rasafari has been that for me. Um, and that actually ties back into the interview as well, because Keith is a big fan of, of people authoring their own stories, which is something that I take a lot of pride in doing in my own life. So I, I can't wait for you to hear everything that he has to say about it. Oh, and don't you worry uh, about not getting enough animal stories. I know that some of these conversations get pretty philosophical, but uh, this one is heavy on the animals as well. You are going to hear about all kinds of cool stuff from cassowaries to emus to armadillos. Um, yeah, all kinds of stuff. We just kind of touch on them as they happen. Manatees, black bears, you know, stuff animals. It's a good time. So uh, I really cannot wait for you to get into this interview, says the guy who keeps talking and postponing you getting to this interview. So uh, I guess I'll play an ad now instead of uh, getting to the interview. Today's episode is brought to you by Daydreamer Studios. Do you have stories and expertise to share with the world? Have you ever thought about starting your own podcasts? There's no better time to start than now with the help of a trusted production partner. Daydreamer Studios is a full-service production company that takes all the stress off your plate. You can focus on creating engaging content while they focus on recording, editing, audio engineering, hosting, and publishing on 22 platforms. Log into the advanced remote system with one click and the Daydreamer team will be on the other end ready for you to record everything you have to say. Owned and operated by Daydreamer Network, Daydreamer Studios continues on the company's mission to empower storytellers of all kinds by making podcasting accessible to all. For more information and current promotions, visit daydreamernetwork.com slash studios. All right. Well, that's enough teasing. Now we're going to actually get to the interview. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Keith Winston, the zoo director of Brevard Zoo in Florida. All right. So uh, let's start off. Tell me who you are, where we are, and what you do here. I'm Keith Winston, and you're at the Brevard Zoo, which is in Melbourne, Florida, the Space Coast, near Cocoa Beach and Kay Space Center. And I run the zoo. I'm the childhood character. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Love it. And so um, tell me about how you got here. Tell me your journey to here from, from child to now. Oh, well, when I was six years old, my sister's, my older sister's best friend gave me a pair of garter snakes. And that started a reptile obsession that nice. took me through college. When I was in college, I got a summer grant to travel all over Europe and visit the herp programs at European zoos. Um, but then I went, like many people, I tried to go to Wall Street, and then going back to a nature center, and then got really lucky. I applied and got to be the education director 
at the Roger Williams Park Zoo in Providence. I love Roger Williams. And that was just when uh, Tony Vecchio had just become the director there, and he put together a great team I had a privilege of being part of. And so I was there for seven years, uh, sort of cutting my teeth. Um, and then I was at the Brookfield Zoo for nine years. Nice. And then it was time to move on. And you know, at the time, I really had no idea what to look for in a zoo director position. So I, I really I stumbled in the sense I, I didn't know and luckily landed here, which was a perfect fit uh, for my skill set. Because we're a completely independent zoo, extremely entrepreneurial. We have to be. There's no other funding um, with a lot of freedom to take risks. And that fits who I am. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a guy who, 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 like, who fits very well into a big bureaucracy. So it was a really good fit for who I was and what I wanted to do. That's awesome. Um, did you like when you got into all of this back in the day? Did you know that you wanted to be the director of a zoo someday? Or? No, I mean, interesting experience. I started working at this nature center in high school um, because of the reptile obsession, and uh, this uh, this it was outside of New York City. And one October, they brought in like a performance artist to do this work in the woods. And I thought that was fascinating, but I don't know why she's not dealing with Halloween. That's what she should do. So I started organizing these outdoor Halloween haunted walks before anyone else did them. They were the first outdoor ones we've heard of. And I found I did have a talent for organizing large groups of people to get things done. I didn't really reflect on that till later, (laughs) but I didn't mind being in charge. That was good. So I think that was sort of, you know, uh, foreshadowed eventually, uh, you know, what, what, I could do or like to do, but no, I didn't set out to be the zoo director. Okay. That makes sense. And I'm kind of curious. So I've gotten to interview a couple of zoo directors now and I've noticed a trend, but I mean, you know, it's only a few of you, but every zoo director that I have talked to so far, super chill, super laid back. I mean, clearly organized and have to be a good leader, but I have yet to meet a person sitting in your chair or with your title who is a stuffed up sticky beak. Um, do you think that is, is that in general your experience getting to meet people or do you want to throw your, your, uh... well, I don't know the definition of a stuffed up sticky beak. So, um, well, I think if you're a zoo director, it, it's like a small city and you need to keep a lot of balls in the air. So if you're a simply an A to B by the book person, it's probably going to be challenging. I also suspect that the zoo directors who are willing to sit down and do a podcast are a little more comfortable with that. So you're sampling, fair. you might have sampling error here. <laughs> Um, fair, fair. There are pretentious people in our field, but I have to tell you, most of the zoo directors I work with have great affection for. I was on the AZA board many years ago, and I was just blown away and impressed by all of my colleagues when I got to see zoo directors in an intense work, uh, you know, sort of environment, their intelligence and their flexibility. So, yeah, most of my folks I know, you know, do fit that habit. They are really uh, interesting, smart people who, by and large, are pretty flexible. That's really cool. I love that. Um, and I can definitely see that that helping with the situation, especially, I mean, your charges, and I don't mean your staff, but I mean the animals, are uh, unpredictable, to say the least. Yeah, and that is part of the charm. I mean, we, we are here in the shadows of the theme parks, and my family and I love to go to theme parks, but what I always talk about is what makes a zoo visit or aquarium visit great. It's, it's when you get to author your story. In the theme parks, that doesn't happen a lot. The rides are the exact same ride every time, unless something goes wrong, and then you do get to author your story, but it's not the good story. Um, so the theme parks rely pretty much solely on on their guest experience in terms of staff to change things. We rely on that too, but you never know what's going to happen with the animals. At the zoo. You know, Some days the giraffes are feeding inactive, some days they're wrapping their tongue around your head, and some days you're not even going to see them. Um, so that unpredictability is part of what makes us uh, you know, authentic and 
uh, important, I think, in terms of an experience, in terms of a marker experience. Absolutely. That makes a ton of sense. Um, And, you know, speaking of the theme parks and also just Florida, there are so many attractions down here, whether it is the the Big Mouse or or Universal or... um, the, the 380 million zoos that are down here. Um, I think it's both accredited 14 or, or 17 accredited ones. I can't remember. Maybe it's 19. Yeah, there's it's, quite a few of us. It's really impressive yeah. um, and has made for a lot of really nice visits for me, Good. which I'm enjoying. Good. Um, but so how do you stand out? How do you get people to come here? Um, I think we're distinctly different from everybody else. Um, we are a zoo that describes ourselves as we provide um, authentic nature. We, we provide personal nature experiences in an authentic Florida setting. I'm going to turn the question back on you, but our zoo is not about an encyclopedic collection of animals. It's not about passive. Um, you know, we offer kayaking through our zoo. We offer ziplining through our zoo. Uh, we have a bike trail, Terminator Zoo. We have lots of experiences that are not traditional at other zoos. Um, and so everything we do, I hope you get some opportunity to get up close and personal to the animal in a unique way. I'm going to turn it back to you. Did you find a difference in your experience today than other zoos in Florida? Absolutely, I did. Okay. Um, and and like you said, part of it is, you're right, there's not a huge collection. You know, yeah. I was just down in Miami, and I almost died and walked 25,000 steps and barely saw everything. And it was great. I am not, no, I had an amazing experience there. Don't get me wrong. But this is completely different. Yeah. And the fact that I was just on a half hour kayak tour, yeah. I'm not just soaked in sweat because it's like a hundred degrees out there. I'm also soaked in uh dirty river water from the, the kayak. Well clean that, river water. Of course, clean of course, of course. Yes, course. Yes, no, yes. Yes. But um it was that was fascinating. Right. A different and, experience. And it's not, um, and we, you know, I was going to lead into this a little later, but let's just do it now. It's not a fake kayaking thing. It's not like when you get on like a, a zoo train, which I have yet to do here, but I know will be cool. You're sitting on a train. Your butt is sitting. You're seeing animals or, you know, whatever. And that's all. You actually kayak. One of the five kayaks in our group were two people who did not know how to kayak. Yeah. And we had to sit and wait, and they figured it out, and they rammed into us a couple times, and it was a whole thing. We kayaked through a zoo. Yeah, it's a, That's magical. It's a real experience. So for many people, it's their first kayak experience. Right. And if we're really trying to connect people to nature, that is show mission-based. And you hit on it. You know, One of the keys to our success is we are a half-day experience and never want to be more than a half-day experience. So it's manageable. Um, we did not survey last year, but prior to that, our average length of stay, you want to take a guess, your zoo experience, as reported by guests, oh, thousands I, of surveys. I would guess maybe two or three hours. Four hours. Wow. Yeah. So, which is actually, as, as, as major aquariums, major zoos, that's typical. Because you don't have to be rushed. Right. Because you don't have to rush through the seat of 10,000 animals and 20,000 steps. People tend to chill out and enjoy and be present with the experience. Oh, and, and so that's it's not what they do at a lot of places. That's what they do. I see it. Right. <laughs> so what's interesting is occasionally we will get a review, and very rare, this year has been, you know, I look at the Facebook reviews and they're all fabulous, which usually gets one, I don't get it. I don't get people, people love this zoo so much. They have they don't have that many unusual animals. Um, and that's because those folks are sort of walking around, ticking off the species they see. That is not our experience. Right. We, are, uh, we are a collection of experiences we're not a collection of animals. You know, the animals are the residents and we connect you. So, um, so that's very much what we do. Um, so I think that's what makes us different. And, and the length of stay, as I said, I'm always amazed. Four hours. We get European tourists here because we, you know, we have a full bar and they're here for seven hours. <laughs> they have a very relaxed day. They get to go kayaking and ziplining and do these other things. So. That is really cool. Yeah. So I'm actually, I'm here with a friend today, Alicia. Yeah. And, um, 
as we were walking in, it's so funny that you said that. I have been here before. Um, and as we're walking in, Alicia goes, so what, uh, what animal are you most excited to see? And normally I can answer that question very easily. And I, I kind of paused and I was like, no, I'm really looking forward to the kayaking. And I'm really looking forward to like just being here. I, I even have pictures. Uh, the last time I was here, it was with some of the guys that I, I tour with. And I have pictures of like my bass player and I in the little meerkat maze area where it's probably meant for children, but we're in there and we're having a blast and it's our faces and a meerkat's face. And it was, it was just yeah. a great memory. You know? Yeah. You know, we have some really uh, special animals here, but they're not here for you. We have Perdidoki beach mice, one of a couple zoos to hold them. And after we restored that population, we have a Florida grasshopper sparrows. Um, these are really rare animals that you don't see, but they're here for conservation purposes. And, you know, our animals that are out there are a lot of the typical species you might see otherwhere, but they're living very different lives than most other zoos. And you can experience that. Yeah. It's, it's very cool. That makes sense. Um, do you think that you, do you think that the proximity of the theme parks and stuff helps? Absolutely. Okay. I would love being in the theme. First of all, we love our, our theme park partners and we do work closely with them. Uh, it sets a different, this is an independent zoo. We don't get any recurring public operating support. And that is very unusual. The reason we can do this is because our price points seem very reasonable compared to the theme parks um, <laughs> and that we give a half day option. So if you want a full day option, you go to a theme park, you pay a hundred plus to $200. Um, and if you come here and you pay $25 and everyone feels really good about it. So our price structure, I don't think you'd see this in other cities. Um, we, we don't get complaints about values except occasionally from a local who doesn't understand. Um, so yeah, I think we benefit, we benefit in two ways. One, we have a, a big tourist segment, which is unusual for zoos. There's very few zoos that, you know, are tourist driven, uh, San Diego being the biggest exception. Right. Right. Uh, but most zoos are locals. And we get 45% tourists, so we're really happy. And they're really happy to be here because they're paying a quarter of what they pay at other institutions. <laughs> they're having a, a, a great time that surpasses their expectations. So, yeah, we love being around here, and we love working with the theme parks. Very cool. Um, and so, you know, with, with so many uh, people coming in as, as tourists and stuff, do you guys do anything to try to do outreach to the local community to get them more involved in everything? Oh, we are totally involved. It, it, that's what we answer the call. So our conservation message in, 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 in one step is, is just that um, we answer the call for the community. We answer the call for the agencies that want to work with us. People come to us with their challenges. We don't usually set our own agenda that way. So the species we work with, the projects we take on, it's all about answering the call. And uh, the community knows that. Um, so one example was in 2016, our Board of County Commissioners voted in August to put on the ballot in November uh, um, a half-cent sales tax for the Indian Lagoon, which is now getting about $40 million a year for conservation. Literally the next day, our phones rang off. You guys are going to get this thing passed, right? That's who they went to. They came to the zoo and said, get it passed. The community trusts you. Get the word out. And we did. Um, we answered that call. So people come to us for that, and there's a source, amazing source of community pride. Um, so yes, we do programming of all sorts here that encyclopedic, like so many other places you know. Um, we do many of the same things that, that you've seen. Um, you know, we have evenings for kids with sensory processing issues. Um, 
this year, August and September, will be free for kids for with Florida residents. Wow. Yeah, we do all sorts of things. None of those are all that unique. You can find those at other zoos. Um, but I think it's the overall nature of the zoo. Like many zoos, people get married here. We had a new um, a school board member who came to her, who was elected, came to her first school board meeting, which was here, by the way. <laughs> um, we were hosting a workshop for them here. We just offered the space to the school board, and nice. the superintendent introduced me. And usually my job at that point is to make sure they know the zoo and the programs we do with with all the students. And the first thing she said is, oh, I got married here. I like, that's a great start. Um, <laughs> so whether whether you came to Boo at the Zoo as a little kid or early childhood programs, or you're a mom or dad who brings their kids to play in our water area, um, throughout many stages of your life, you're going to be engaged in the zoo. And what people always tell me here is that when they have out-of-town visitors, they send them to the theme parks, but they take them to the zoo because it's easy, it's reasonably priced, and it's a source of pride. They know they the community built it and, and owns it and knows it. That makes so much sense. That's so cool. I yeah. love that. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about this kayaking thing. Yeah. How does that come to be? How do you run that? Just tell me everything because this is unique. Well, that comes to be when you have a brilliant director who precedes you. Ah, okay, so, fair. Um, and that's Margot <laughs> McKnight, who now runs the zoo in West Palm Beach. Nice. Um, nice. And you know, they originally piloted that idea. We have two kayaking experiences here. The original one was in our wetlands, which I don't know if you saw. It's a little off the beaten path. You can do individually kayaking on your own. And they piloted it, and they realized this works great in a zoo setting. And then when she built our expedition Africa, she put it in there. Um, and it's been very successful. It's successful as a value add. It's a peak experience um, that's unique. And for many people, it's their first kayaking. It's also uh, cheap. It's also relatively cheap. Um, and we've raised the prices. It is, it is, not, a, it is a, um, not a loss leader because we don't lose money off it. We don't make money off it. Okay. What it does is gives you an amazing experience that you remember. Um, uh, uh, Jeffrey Bonner, who's the retiring director of St. Louis Zoo, often tells me it's the best zoo experience I ever had. It's kayaking by giraffes. And it is. Yeah. It's, it's a peak experience. So um, it's something that she came up with. you got to give her all the credit in the world. And it's just been fantastic for us. I'm surprised most places don't do it. But in Florida, you know, you dig down into the ground three feet and three feet, three inches, and you hit water. Right. And so it's very easy to create a water trail that does it. Uh, okay. So that is like man-made then. Right. Yeah, of course. Okay. Everything yeah. is, you know, this was a wild setting. Um, uh, most of the bodies of water here were simply dug. So in Florida, what happens is you dig things out and you pile the dirt up and you build your structure on the dirt and then the water is retained in those retention ponds. Um, and that's very much what happened here. I think the design that preceded Margot, but is, is a very organic one. So I've been to other zoos that have boat rides. And if if you can stand at the entrance of the exhibit and see the whole boat ride, there's no mystery to it. Right. You're like, right. I'm not going to go do that. I can see everything. You got to disappear around a corner and go into the jungle. And that's essentially what this does. Yeah, it really, it really does. It's it's the coolest thing. And you know, it's it's funny because um, not only do, do do I think it helps with memories as far as like made on the boat, yeah. but in talking to my friends who came here with me, um, you know, they're not big zoo nerds, right? Uh, and um, I said to everyone, hey, I'm going to, to Brevard today. And everyone was like, that's the place where we kayaked, right? Do you remember you got really excited about a box turtle there because there's a hinged box turtle, which I had never seen before in, in the herp house here. And I had I had never seen that. And I was so excited. And uh, and another one, wait, didn't we meet tortoises there? Yes, yes, we did. Yes. And oh, that was the place with the Komodo dragon that was like really close to us. Like, yes, it was through glass. But yeah. And it was so cool to see their retention as non-animal nerds. And I think a lot of it stemmed from the fact that like 
just was a place where we kayak. Right. You know, it's just very that, different. And I go back to that language. You get to author your own story here. Mm-hmm. It's different because every kayak, you, you talked about the people who had never kayaked before and bumped into your boat. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't traumatic, but it was different. <laughs> right. Right. And right. They, we watched people go in circles. Um, <laughs> for many years when I first came here, the only person who had ever fallen out of a kayak was a board member. So that was okay. <laughs> We've had a few people fall out since, but uh, it takes a lot of work and it's not very deep. Yeah. Um, no, but, no. Um, but yeah, again, that's what you want. You know, I spent a lot of time, I went from being a herper to a birder and I spent a lot of time out in nature and it's the unexpected nature of it that, that there's, it's still an adventure. You don't know what's going to happen. Absolutely. Um, also, I have to tell you, uh, just as a side note, the aviaries here are incredible. Yeah, uh, I'm really used to, you know, lorikeets and more lorikeets and then some lorikeets. Uh, I was inches away from a laughing kookaburra in a free flight aviary today and a taraco. And um, we actually met uh, one of the keepers used yep. to work with some friends of ours, Kristen. Uh, she's amazing right. keeper. And, uh, and she was taking Alicia and I through and... Um, the the species in a free flight aviary that I was seeing were just amazing. Well, we're really lucky here in Florida. Uh, you know, a friend of mine once said, who worked at Roger Williams Park, so she said, most of your cages are just wire cages, but they're covered with plants, so you don't see them. I said, yeah, pretty much we build an exhibit, and 20 minutes later, the vegetation's grown up. So <laughs> we're able to do things that you can't do. Lorries are pretty destructive birds in terms of their you know proclivity to chew on things. And here, the vegetation grows fast enough. We can do that. Um, and we're in you know, a subtropical climate, so we have all these... Uh, Central and South American, and well, in this case, Australian birds that do very well here. Um, and so we're able to do that. Uh, we don't have snow loads on our roof. Um, we have heating structures built in. You probably didn't even notice them. Nope, not um, at all. Very simple approach that works beautifully for the few cold days we have. And yeah, we want to have a diversity. I thought you were going to say Victoria Crown Pigeon because I love them. Also amazing. Also yes, amazing. Also amazing. And amazing. the uh, kookaburras and you know the tawny frogmouths have bred. And then there's turtles and Mandarin ducks and, and you know, gala cockatoos, and we just mix some things in. You picked up on the taracos that don't come from South America, but they're so cool, and we breed a lot of taracos <laughs> here, and they're vine runners, so they move very differently in those experiences. Those two aviaries that you saw, we redid all of them in 2017. Um, the original aviaries had boardwalks that were always a little slippery and a little unsafe, and it killed me to redo them because the vegetation was so lush and I rich. Um, it's not quite back, but it's okay. It's grown back. It's taken. It's growing. So we feel pretty good about them, and it's better for the birds and better for the guests. And the setup works well. The entry building you saw that goes through is almost all recycled pallet lumber and recycled oh, really? pieces. Yeah, nice. so it's sort of fun too. I was um, too excited about the birds to really. There look you at the go. Building. You're the animal geek. So <laughs> we just added some like western rosellas and a couple of other things in there too that just went in. So nice. Yeah, it's it's an amazing collection. It was. It was very cool. Um, I I have a a very soft spot in my heart for kookaburras. Yeah, and that was the closest I've ever okay. been to one. Um, off, like well, without a, a yeah. barrier, except for one that I got to feed some out of my hand at a zoo once. But other than that, and you know, it's that thing too, where like when you love an animal, even like having met a kookaburra and held a kookaburra, uh, being that close to another one, yeah, was st- I was so that chooses happy. to be there near you. Yes, and didn't fly away and didn't get scared and yeah. and even ate like inches from me. My kids amazing. when they were young used to imitate their call and they would call back and the keepers weren't happy because you know that's like it's like forcing a bird to do something it might not want right, to. Right. So um 
And you also walked through our, our kangaroo yard. Were the kangaroos all sleeping or were they sleeping in the path or what were they doing? They were sleeping, but, but you know, they were being adorable. Yeah. yeah. Often we have some that on coolers will actually sleep in the path and you have to walk around them. Oh, nice. always really fun. That's great. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, my favorite thing in the kangaroo yard was, though, the uh, the cassowary. Yeah. Obviously not. Uh, not in the kangaroo not, yard. Right, right. I was just going to say. the kangaroo I was yard. just going to crack this, but you next can see it kangaroo. from the kangaroo yeah, yard. Yeah, not see. in. The emu was in there, but yes. not the cassowary. Yes. And yeah. the emu were incredible, too. Yeah. They're stunning yeah um but uh what, what can you tell me about your cassowary i'm just i'm obsessed with them well the sad thing is we lost our mail this year no oh, i'm sorry um, and we lost him because it was a mast year mast years are where oak trees drop massive amounts of acorns and yeah. he ingested so many acorns he ended up poisoning himself oh something I'm we sorry. hadn't really thought of because mast years are unusual things right um, Interesting. And, and they're ratites we always talk about the fact that their brains aren't that big right right and this was the case so that's sad we've been on a on a path to introduce them and breed, of course, the male is smaller than the female, and it's dangerous. So, so we're a little saddened. We would have preferred to have a breeding pair here, but um, she's been with us for many years, Big Mama, and she's she's great. And of course, the rat, you know, cassowaries have the reputation for the stiletto, you know, claw and being so vicious. I've never met a vicious one. I'm never going to test that theory. Sure, but, sure. Um, but but they're just spectacular. Um, you know, we also have emu here and a pair of ostrich. We used to have Rhea, so we had it pretty well covered. Uh, no kiwis, but you know. So, yeah, yeah. so um, I've been told this by other keepers. I'm curious about your opinion, but are Rhea the scariest birds to work with? I've really never worked with Rhea. Okay. You know, they were here when I got here, but I don't know them well. Gotcha. Okay. I mean, all of the rat tights, emus are, are probably the easiest to work with. Um, we have a, 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 I don't if you looked at sort of what's changed since you were last year, the, the way we manage our stock between the train yard and the rhino yard and the, the big veld, everything rotates now. And right. a lot of new species have been added from bongo to Watusi cattle um, to we have, you know, Grevy zebra. Um, but for many years we had a, a female or just female um, ostrich. And then we now have a male. Um, I'm trying to remember his name. It's pretty funny if you know ostrich, but we have really great management team over there. And because of that, it's been very comfortable. You know, male ostrich can be scary. Uh, like cassowary, but it's been it's been great. Um, the female's windy. Cannot remember his name. It's perfect for a male ostrich. But <laughs> I'll have to ask when I head yeah, back. That way, head see back if Kristen there. knows. I'm sure she does. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's time for interrupting. 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 Interrupting John. Mm. Well, y'all, I totally forgot to ask after the interview, but I totally remembered to message Alicia as I was putting this together and see if she was willing to text the keeper in question, and she did. So without further ado, I can officially tell you that the bird's name is Littlefoot, which is hilarious, both because ratites have huge feet and also because they look like dinosaurs, and that is the name of a dinosaur in the Land Before Time series. Littlefoot. Hee <laughs> hee. Okay, back to the interview. On a personal level, when you are here and you're walking through the zoo and you're having a rough day and you just want to go see your favorite bud in the zoo, what animal are you going to Well, see? you know, again, I'm a birder. So for me, is the magical moments when something else shows up. When there's an armadillo, and armadillos always have four babies, and you know, mother armadillo is giving birth and she knows it's safe. So she's walking through the zoo during the deadlight with her four babies behind <laughs> us. Or you come around the corner and there's guest stop because there's a smooth green snake, a rough green snake in this case, you know, crawling up a fence. Those are sort of the magical moments for me. 
Um, I don't necessarily visit individual animals as much. I love our bears. We have two bears with a lot of personality who both have a great story behind them. I love our spider monkey exhibit because it actually it gives them a chance to do fission fusion, which no other place that we know of does it. So I love visiting those areas. We used to have a giant black-throated monitor here named Ollie who lived in the children's zoo with, um, with all the other animals that you could pet. He was amazing. I like to visit him, uh, but he's not with us anymore. So, Gotcha. Yeah, that's always the rough part, isn't it? Yeah. You know, as I tell people, mortality in the zoo is 100%. Yeah. You know, valid. people don't understand that we provide lifelong care for animals. We find, uh, we find retirement spaces for them in the zoo. Whatever's best for them, we retire animals and we keep them here. Um, but, you know, uh, I have... Everybody, everyone goes eventually, and that's true of zoo animals too. Absolutely. Um, so let's let's turn it back to a happier note, though. Yeah. Uh, along with all of the cool stuff on exhibit, you guys have an off exhibit sea turtle rescue here. We do, and I want to hear everything because I sea turtles are one of my big four. You'll yeah. notice somewhere in my little sea turtle necklace today. I did notice that, um, yeah. and I remember literally the last time I was here. I was right up to where the sea turtle rescue kind of tanks are, and I was like, all right, I'm going back. I'm going to pretend I didn't see the sign that says no one's allowed. I wouldn't do that, but I just being that close to sea turtles always makes me so happy. So tell me about it. We have a great program, and it started um, organically. We are now probably the most important nesting beach in the Western Hemisphere for loggerheads. Wow. Uh, green sea turtles have been coming up. Um, there's some leatherbacks now, and we've had some Kemperilles. Wow. Right here. So this is central. And for up until we opened, those animals had to go south to Loggerhead, Sea Turtle, or up to Ponce. They had to drive at least an hour to bring them or to SeaWorld. So there was a burning need. In 2012, we opened um, the L3 Harris uh, Healing Center, you know, uh, Animal Care Center, which was a, a modern veterinary hospital. Um, it just seemed natural that at that point we could uh, add a Sea Turtle facility. And so 2014, we, we opened the Sea Turtle Healing Center. You know, we have the advantage of, for a smaller medium zoo, a really nice animal care team here. Um, we take both animal, both turtles that are, you know, that are uh, non-PAP positive, but also PAP positive. What is PAP? It's fibropapilloma. It's a herpes-like cancer that's very common, unfortunately, in Greece, sea turtles here. And you have to keep those animals separate. Um, and we've been able to expand our facility. So the level of care we give sea turtles here is, is rather amazing. Um, we have, you know, two full-time sea turtle care folks. We have a large veterinary team. Well, they would tell you it's not very large. Not large <laughs> enough. Um, we have two diplomat vets. As you might know, there's about 275 people in the world who have that diplomat in zoological medicine. Two I of, don't know what this is. So if you would like to tell so me, So there's I'm a curious. specialty in zoological medicine, okay. just like you have board certified oncologists. Right, right. You have board certified folks. It's a really difficult road to get it. About 275 people in the world have that accreditation and two are our vets. Um, so that's, and then we also have vet internship program. So we're vet rich in terms of having great veterinary procedures. We, we have specialized equipment that supports sea turtles here with the fibroplapilloma. Um, you need to do, we don't, it, there's a couple approaches, but we use laser surgery to remove these growths. Wow. Um, okay. you know, so we have some specialized equipment. Um, we've expanded our facility, but we filter capacity all the time. Nevertheless, What's wonderful about the sea turtles is people feel so deeply about them. We have an incredibly dedicated group of volunteers. And then when we're ready to release a sea turtle, we work with the state agency. They're the ones who bring us turtles. Right. And then they're the ones who tell us when we're clear to release them. We do the release where they tell us. And, you know, we call that going home. And it's a really joyous moment when you see a sea turtle of any side going back into the surf and going home. Um, and so it brings a lot of joy to us and the community. 
it makes us hope to be offsetting some of the damage we do out there for sea turtles. We also have a partnership with Northrop Grumman where we're developing new technologies to actually study sea turtle behavior uh, using drones, using unmanned drones and other technologies to monitor. So sea turtles are really critical to our community and we feel like we can do everything we can to step up and do it. And I'll tell you something else. You might not know if you're not from Florida, but most towns, most places, I think it might even be Florida rules, but certainly the local municipalities here have sea turtle friendly lighting requirements Yes, because when they nest at night on the young, so you can't, and, and, People really do a good job respecting that here. You get an occasional person who doesn't, but people get it. It's a privilege to be on the beach here, and they really support it. That is awesome. I've noticed that. I'm, like I said, I'm gigging in Sarasota right now, yeah. and I, I have gone walking the beach a couple times at night, yeah. hoping to see someone nesting, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah, you're right. You don't see a white light. They're really well. all red or you know the other ones. That there was are- an adult female nesting turtle who did get confused and wandered into A1A and got hit by a car. Mm. And that was big news here. That was really horrible news. Like the People, people took that very seriously. Um, Floridians have also stepped up when it comes to black bears. You know, we were down to 500 black bears and- um, now the population's rebounded. And if you go to Orlando, there are suburbs where they see black bears every morning going through their neighborhood. Wow. And by and large, Floridians have understood that we're responsible to not put bears in bad situations by leaving food out or leaving garbage out. And when you get these bad bear human encounters because someone's broken the rules, almost always people blame the person, not the bear. So it's I've been really proud of Floridians for understanding that connection. That Okay, so I, I have to ask. Yeah. Um, Oh, you know, I'm just going to say it. Yeah. But uh, as a person who's not from Florida, yeah. um, you know, Florida gets a lot of guff from the rest of the country. And and it is considered a, you know, by a lot of people to be very anti-science, very backwards, very close to say whatever you will, you know. But there's definitely the Florida man joke or whatever. Yeah. So how is it that in a state that that has that reputation, and maybe it's an undeserved reputation, uh, I can understand that. The states are all gossiping about each other. It's like high school, you know. Yeah. But how do you get such passion for conservation? Well, let's let's face it. When you come to Florida, you are moving to the, like the only semi-tropical part of our country. You know, you're going to be seeing, you know, alligators on a daily basis, and you're going to be seeing all this other wildlife. And I think the people who move here understand that that's what gives it character. If you're if you're going to be, you know, lifting painkillers on the beach, it's because there's a beach and and that's what offers you that. So I find by and large Floridians understand, and especially now, it, it, environmental issues in Florida are now bipartisan. Uh, solutions aren't always bipartisan, right, but right. everybody understands water is what defines our future. So I find that it's not a, it, you might have arguments about which way to fix it, but no one argues that you should fix it, right? And really it defines, you know, where you're like, hey, welcome to Florida. We do things differently here. Like, you know, don't mess with Texas. Um, so gators and bears and crocodiles and sea turtles and rattlesnakes and all these things, that's part of our culture. And that's what makes it cool, you know? Oh, I that love that. Cool. Now, I can tell you this. We're, we're late to the bear show. A lot of other states have had big bear populations for a long time, and they've done well as well. Pennsylvania and New York, mm-hmm. everyone. The bears have come back, and I think by and large people have done a really good job with them. I think the big carnivore that freaks people out for reasons I've never fully understood is wolves. Um Wolves freak people out in a way so bears much. and panthers don't. Right. And um, this is actually what I was going to ask. I was going to segue to, can we figure out a way to make North Carolina 
yeah. as invested in this wolf population that we're trying to regrow there, you know, as we have with the Florida residents and, and caring about their animals. That's what I'm trying. To I'm figure. fascinated by this question and um, I don't have a good answer. Um, you know, I think there's a few things I think, you know, and, and again, I've seen a couple of different theories. One is as sort of looking like man's best friend, people feel betrayed whenever they ever do a thing we don't like. Fair. Of course, dogs kill more people than wolves ever do. There's right. virtually no wolf deaths in North America. Um, they people might be threatened by the social nature of this predator, whereas you know almost every other big predator we have in this country are are you know live as individual or solitary animals. Um, you know there are cases of wolves killing more than they can eat. I think that's part of it. I don't really get it. Now you know I'm going to say this very specifically. Sort of the coasts and the elite uh, wolves are at the top of the pantheon of noble sort of creatures. But again, in rural areas and cattle areas, people will tell you, "I don't mind the bears, I, you know, I don't mind the panthers, but I hate the wolves," and I don't, I don't understand why. I don't understand why, and I think there's still people trying to tease out why they have such strong feelings about about it. But if you read about what's his name, who wrote the death of Lobo, I mean, is there's about the dying light in their eye? There's something special about wolves. It just calls to people. So, oh yeah, um, you saw in North Carolina some, you know, and in, in Mexican wolves and red wolves and. Um, you know, the attempts to declassify wolves and people really don't like them. I know elk hunters, you know, it's harder to shoot elk now because the elk have learned to avoid the wolves. Right, right. All right, well, you know, it's it's harder to fish now too, but that's part of it. So <laughs> not shooting fish in a barrel. So, <laughs> Oh, you fit this podcast so well. Oh, good. <laughs> no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's kind of something I've just become incredibly passionate about and I don't know what to do with the passion yet. But um, I do. I talk about the the wolves, especially in North Carolina, but also what's going on in Idaho and all kinds of stuff on this podcast a lot because they're just they're amazing animals and they're somehow vilified. Well, and people listen. At the same time, people have very unrealistic understanding. Listen, if a rancher's working and loses calves, and it's not just the money; it's also he's worked waiting for you know a year for those cattle to give work. I understand that's a loss, and we need to work to mitigate that. Um, I worked at the Brookfield Zoo years ago. Uh, we had a geriatric wolf who was behind the scenes, um, and a woman who had mental illness uh, wandered off the path, went behind the scenes, actually stuck her hand in the wolf exhibit uh, to try to pet the wolf, and she crossed multiple barriers. And our security guard at that point had to shoot the wolf because it was latched onto her hand. I mean, it was a horrible thing. Right. She spent multiple days in the hospital. That's all I know. So this was not a light injury. But uh, I ended up fielding multiple calls for people who were both very concerned about wolves and, and horrified at what happened, as we all were. But when I suggested they could actually put their money and join the Defenders of Wildlife or some other national organization to make a difference, I got a lot of clicks on the phone. So people were concerned, but once it cost them anything. So I can register that versus a rancher who has money on the line. It matters. So um, we need to find you know good solutions, as we do with elephants in, in Africa and other places and different animals that impact people. Um, you know, the, the, in, in South Africa right now, uh, the great whites have disappeared in many places because the orcas have come in and driven them off. Right, right. right? And, and they, just eat the, they just eat the livers of the great white sharks, which is just sort of amazing. But suddenly you have these locals who are upset with the, great, with the orcas because they're driving off the sharks, which are the real tourist attraction. So it's just a complicated world. It really is. It really is. We've, uh, uh, the things we have done to nature and then trying to coexist while also master it. Well, you know, I tell everybody at this point, you know, there is no wild. There's no wild. Mm -hmm. We have to manage everything. So there's going to be trade-offs. And if anyone has a romantic vision of some part of the world we haven't touched, that's all it is, is romantic. So we need to take responsibility for those things, make the best informed choices we can. You're not going to please everybody all of the time. 
Um, but you have to take a look and do what you can do best. So. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, um, I think that's one of the, the hardest conservation messages to get out there is that there is no wild, mm-hmm. uh, because you know, people always say, well, just, you should release all your animals back into the wild and they'll be fine. First of all, that's not how captivity works, but also even if you could, even if every animal in every zoo was raised in a way for release, where are you going to put them? Well, and, yeah. and, and the habitats have to be managed. So, yeah. for example, we work with Florida scrub jays. It's an endemic bird. There's multiple populations, um, but the local population that's really close to the zoo, that meta population, lives on the Atlantic coastal rim. And scrub jays are scrub specialists. They live in a mosaic of scrub of different sizes. And their weak link is predation, somewhat yellow rat snakes, but mostly Cooper's hawks. So if you have more than like one pine tree per 20 acres – there's too many places for the Cooper's hawks to hang out and swoop down and get the scrub jays. So besides maintaining the scrub through fire and through cutting and all those things, you need to cut down the pine trees. Otherwise, you're not going to have scrub jays. Well, that's really offensive to a lot of people. Why are you cutting these beautiful pine trees down? These are native. It's not invasive. Right, right. Well, if you want the scrub jays and you want to return it, because in a normal scrub environment that's fire regulated, where we haven't stopped fire for 20 years, you wouldn't have all these pine trees. Or, you know, so... These are tough choices for people, and they don't always understand them. But if you just let nature go, there'd be no scrub jays. It would be you'd find this sort of tedium of one sort of habitat because we've disturbed it all. You've got to manage some of it. So. Yeah, absolutely makes sense. Uh, are there any other conservation uh, efforts that y'all are involved in here that you'd like to highlight? Well, the, uh, you know, we have we do quite a bit, but I mean, the restore shore efforts is what we're sort of defined for working in the Inver Lagoon, and we've been specialists in infrastructure restoration. So that is um, oysters, mangroves, shoreline grasses, um, uh, seagrass to a limited extent. We're just working with clams. Um, so we actually work with the community to bring back those ecosystem services that are key to stopping erosion, reducing turbidity, all of those things. Um, and that's a huge effort involving, at this point, I'm, we're probably north of 60,000 people have probably worked with us wow. on those projects. Um, so we're excited about that. Working in the University of Florida, like two years ago, a researcher there went out and found like the last remaining super clams in the Inner Lagoon, which is amazing because at one point, 90% of the clam harvest in Florida came out of the lagoon, over-harvested, um, all the issues related to pollution. He found these hardy clams. He spread the clams. He did a pilot program. And now basically reached out and said, okay, you guys like pick this up. So we hope to put in over a hundred clam gardens this year and, and, and basically learn how putting that part of the filtration system works. So we're excited about our flexibility and be able to take on new projects like this and get them done. That is really cool. Do you find that it's, it's harder to get people invested in a project about clams no, than it is sea turtles? Not no, at all. People get it's it. It's amazing. Huh? When That's we so do an oyster gardening program with hundreds and hundreds of people over time where you run them off your docks and people come up to pick up the So basically you have spat on shells, right? So you have like a little metal box, you hang off your dock and we give you some oyster shells and there's little baby oysters on there that then grow up and then we use to seed other things. People show up with coolers to pick up their spat on shells. I mean, these things are like, like a dot on a dot exercise on a shell. They'll put them in the cooler They'll sit down, they'll put the cooler on their lap, they'll strap the cooler in with the uh, seat belts to take care of their baby oysters till they can get them home. So with that kind of love out there, you can do great things. So That's really amazing. Uh, I love that. And um, then normally what I do at this time is I open the floor. So if there's anyone, anything, any conservation organization, any anything that you want to talk about, floor is yours. Hmm, that's a great question. 
You know, I, I, I think we, we didn't really talk about the role of zoos. And I think one of the things that's just, I think it's important is every zoo plays a different role in its community. Um, and, and absolutely the conservation energy we bring is a critical part, but I think we bring a critical part to people's quality of life. We haven't talked about some of the things separating people from nature. Um, you know, technology is just part of it, you know, overscheduling, um, Certainly, you know, the boogeyman syndrome where they're scared to let your kids run outside. And zoos are part of the solution to that. Um, so the recreational value of zoos, I don't think, should be underestimated. Now, you don't. You spend all your spare minute in zoos. So, yes. But for a lot of people, there's a quality of life issue there that we try to bring out to communities as well. No, that actually – it's funny that you said that because one of the things that I noticed when I was here and that I, I debated bringing up or not, and our conversation just didn't go that way until now, but you had a sign-up that, that – that is right by uh, the the one food area that was like, hey, we know, I forget exactly how it's phrased, but it's like, you're here for entertainment and we hope you have a good day. Also, and then it goes into like factual stuff, but I thought it was so interesting because so many zoos will do just the opposite and be like, you are here, learn. And you guys flat out on the sign were just like, hey, yeah. have fun, y'all. Oh, and then by the way, if you want to learn about a bird, cool. Like, Listen, yeah. my 17-year-old has this thing called a phone. It has... <laughs> <laughs> access to all the information that we know of in this solar system. You don't go to the zoo to learn. You go to the zoo to experience. If you wanted to learn, you can stay home and look at your phone, uh, really. And and that's it. And now hopefully you're excited about sharing and changing the model in your head of how the world works. But I, I don't think the cognitive is a big part of what we do. We spend a lot of time on fancy signs. And, you know, they look good. And maybe people read a few of them. And they're interesting. Mm -hmm. But that's not the point of it. No, I get that. As a matter of fact, I... I am very guilty of, um, I want to learn all the facts. Yeah. And if I see some animal that I don't know something about and I see a cool sign, I snap a photo yeah. and then I read it later or I research it at home later. Like even me, the nerd who's doing right. a zoo podcast, I'm not reading every sign. I don't, I don't actually care what you learn at the zoo, but I do care what you experience at the zoo. Right. And if you walk away feeling connected in a new way, involved, um, if you see value in time out nature, then I feel like we've done our job. Absolutely. And that's what inspires some people to learn too. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. All right. And then it's time. It's time now, don't you know, we've come to the end of the show, but there's one tale left to go. You're going to laugh and say, oh no, it's time for the Rossifari poop story. Hit me. So I was thinking about the best poop story that I could tell in this setting, but I want to tell you, we do just a little bit with manatees. So a lot of manatees from different places that might be Coldstone are released in our county. Uh, Indian River Lagoon has been the epicenter of manatees, and Brevard County is 70% of the lagoon. It's been a really tough year for manatees. We're yes. thinking what we see is a starvation event. We don't know exactly. But anyway, when, when, when uh, the state agency has some manatees to release, they call on us to provide the bodies. They're big. They're heavy. Safest way to do it is to have a lot of people handling it. And so one of the interesting things I learned about manatees when I was helping with one of these is, you know, they are plant eaters, right? So green sea turtles were the sea turtles people raised for food because they're vegetarians. And normally you think of plant eaters of having the least, you know, the most innocuous poop because it's not full of, of meat. Right, right. Uh, well, I learned the hard way that this manatee poop, which is this greenish brown color, really smells bad. <laughs> And when it gets on your hand, it stains them for days. Oh, no. So what I thought was a nothing poop to deal with, it turns out is like a probably the grossest poop I've dealt with is manatee poop. Smells bad, stain your hand, won't go away. And I don't understand what's inside their system <laughs> digesting it, but it is nasty. So that is my poop story. Poop story. Nothing in the zoo. Just a surprisingly gross poop experience. Oh, man. I love it. That's awesome. So Cool. Well, thank you so much for doing this. My really pleasure. It was great talking to you. 
Welp, that was a lot of fun, as I'm sure you could tell. And uh, yeah, the day at the zoo was pretty special. Uh, we, we went kayaking, as was mentioned. We did the zoo train. Um, and just getting to do all the aviaries and wander around all of the cool little exhibits there was just really nice. It has a very relaxing vibe, and I hope you got some of that from the interview as well. Um, Brevard Zoo is just a pretty, pretty special place. Now, I do have one story from there that I, I have to share with y'all. So the zoo has a pretty cool interactive area where you can go in and pet tortoises and sometimes meet ambassador animals like the box turtle that we mentioned there. And of course, they have a goat yard. And of course, I had to go into the goat yard because goats are awesome. Now, I've mentioned on the podcast before that I have a tradition where I will, I used to say never, now I have to say rarely, use portrait mode on my iPhone to take pictures of any animals other than goats. It's just a silly little tradition that I have, and um, with the exception of like the occasional red panda or something, I've, I've stuck with it, you know. And uh, so I had my camera out and on portrait mode, and I went to take a photo of a goat. And the goat just seemed annoyed with me. And so I decided to back away and the keepers were like, oh, hey, we're about to feed them. They might be hungry. Like, just step away. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. So I walked about halfway across the yard when the goat charged me. I didn't know that goats could charge people and headbutted me directly in the naughty bits. Hard. Like, it hurt. I looked like one of those cartoon characters that gets hit in the naughty bits where I pulled my knees together and kind of bent over and quickly jumped back away from the goat who started to get ready to charge me again. And three keepers came running over and kind of distracted the goat and were like, go, go. And so I had to run out of the goat yard to protect my uh, twig and giggleberries from uh, more damage. So, uh, yeah. I've, I've been, you know, bitten, scratched, and attacked by, by a lot of the animals that I've met in some small capacity. When I say attacked, I usually just mean they put on a little defensive posture and I walked away or whatever. But uh, I did not expect to get attacked by a goat, uh, especially a, um, let's just say a very, a goat with very accurate aim. We're just going to call it that. Yep. So that is my fun story from Brevard. But I had an amazing time. Heck, even that was amazing. Alicia and I were laughing about it for hours afterwards. So you can find the Brevard Zoo online at uh, brevardzoo.org or on the social medias at Brevard Zoo. That's B-R-E-V-A-R-D. And uh, go check it out. Go kayaking. Go get headbutted in the uh, naughty bits. It's a good time, I'm telling you. Wanted to take a minute here to say a special thanks to my Red Panda-level patrons, PJ Bevan and Lara Shank. And remember, friends, the word credits backwards is Stiderk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.